Please open your Bible up to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. We're continuing our series on elect exiles. For those of you who like the big picture to know where we're going, we're going to look again at 1 Peter, continuing the series next week. And then actually I'm going to be gone. And after that, we're going to have four weeks for Advent, reflecting on some of the prophecies uh, foretelling Jesus' birth from the Old Testament. And then we'll have some Christian back into um, this year, first Peter, at the beginning of the new year. Uh, I never have really been a calendar person before coming to this job, but now I know what I'm going to be preaching on several months in advance. And it's kind of a weird thing to know what's, uh, you know, Christmas is that close away, at least in my mind. Anyways, we're in this section here of first Peter, uh, uh, several paragraphs where he's commanding us to be subject or to submit to various authorities in our life. Last week, we looked at Peter's instructions to be subject to the ruling authorities. And if you were here and reflecting on that passage, you may have had the thought that Peter paints an overly rosy picture of our civil government. He says the government's here to punish evil and reward the good, and so do what they say, and you're going to be rewarded if you do good. What problem is there? You may have had the thought, well, what if the government actually itself goes astray, isn't doing what it's supposed to. Couldn't I wind up suffering by submitting to the government? Well, here, as Peter turns from submitting to the government to submitting to masters, he also turns to consider the possibility that in submitting we may indeed face unjust treatment. He asks, how should we respond? What should we do about it? So this is the question before us. How should a Christian respond if we're mistreated by our bosses? If we're mistreated by those around us? Let's read 1 Peter 2, 18 through 25, and then take up this question. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? And if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. My outline this morning follows the structure of Peter's instructions or, or, or writing here in this paragraph. First, Peter instructs us to suffer graciously. Then he tells us that Christ suffered as an example. And then third, that Christ suffered to save us. But before we turn 
to the main point. I know I'm getting a little tricky here with some subpoints or something uh, front-loading material. We need to consider two preliminary questions. First, we need to ask, who does this passage apply to? Peter's term here, servant, isn't the usual term for slave that's used in the New Testament, but refers to a domestic servant. Think Downton Abbey, for example. Even if none of us in this room are domestic servants, properly speaking, many of us can reason by analogy. We can say, I have a boss or an employer who I work for, who I'm accountable to, and therefore I should be subject towards them in an analogous manner. But what about the rest of us? Those of us who are self-employed or retired or homemakers or students, are we all off the hook then? Actually, no. In 2.16, uh, from the, right before this passage that we read this morning, Peter called all Christians to live as servants or slaves of God. Now, Peter turns to address domestic servants specifically, rather than free men or masters or soldiers or whatever else. There's all sorts of classes of people he could write to. He turns to domestic servants precisely because their low social standing makes them an example for how all Christians are called to live. All Christians are slaves of God, and therefore the slave becomes a paradigm for life in exile. So this passage is relevant to all of us this morning. None of us are off the hook. It's relevant to all of us, especially insofar as you are mistreated and trying to figure out how to respond. But this leads us on to a second question. Does Peter endorse slavery? After all, he never condemns slavery. He doesn't give any reciprocal commands to masters in this passage. Is Peter then simply fine with the status quo? This is the way the world is. Go along to get along. Well, let's hang on for a second. First, although Peter does not explicitly condemn slavery, neither does he endorse it. Peter's focus is not on his ideal society, what utopia should look like, but rather how real Christians should live in the real world. And slavery was very much a part of the ancient world. We can't look down our noses too much on them. Every part of our lives that involves electricity or motors or running water had to be done by manpower in the ancient world. There were no laundry machines, dishwashers, or forced air units. Someone had to wash the clothes, wash the dishes, chop the firewood, carry it in. It all had to be done by hand. And in the ancient world, servants did much more than just menial tasks. Some ran entire households, some worked as physicians, tutors, and teachers, some even rose quite high in the Roman government. But make no mistake, servants and slaves could still be physically and sexually abused by harsh masters. It's not the sort of situation most people would seek out. So Peter doesn't explicitly condemn or condone slavery, but he's just trying to teach Christians how do you live in the real world. But second, the very fact that Peter addresses servants directly here in this passage is revolutionary in his time. Ancient ethicists regularly commented on proper household management, including the place of servants. They'd say a servant should be like this, this, and this. But in the ancient world, no one ever directly wrote to servants. Aristotle actually says a servant's a bit like a trained animal, 
or pretty similar to a trained animal. And you don't write a letter to your horse telling it how to behave. You don't write a letter to your servant telling it how to behave. But when Peter writes to servants, he treats them as moral agents. He's saying they have their own decisions to make. They're responsible to God for their own action. And this already elevates their status. That they happen to be slaves or servants is a contingent fact of history, not something in their nature. Third, do you see in verse 19, it says, it talks about suffering unjustly. And in verse 18, it talks about some masters being unjust. If I sing that, Peter's already saying this master-servant relationship as much as any other relationship is held to the standard of justice. And he says a little later in the passage that God judges justice. into this framework. Christianity is actually revolutionary. It's not a sudden violent revolution, but a gradual peaceful revolution in which Christians are called to submit and even suffer for the sake of others. But even in calling them, the axe is already to the root of the institution of slavery. Okay, preliminaries out of the way. Let's turn to our passage. First, in verses 18 to 20, Peter calls us to suffer. You see the basic here in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all just. To serve, even to love or to give oneself, even to suffer for the sake of another. Why should Christian servants be subject to their masters? After all, Peter's just talked in the previous passage about their freedom in Christ. Well, in verse 18, when Peter says, be subject with all respect, the phrase there literally is, in all fear. And this links back to verse 17, where we are called to fear God alone. We're called to fear God alone. So Christian, uh, uh, Peter is not saying here that Christian servants should fear their masters, but rather he's saying that as slaves of God who are therefore free, we are called to use our freedom in honor of God, in respectful fear of God, to submit to our masters. So we submit to our masters or our bosses for God's sake. And then in the last part of verse 18, Peter really gets to the hard part of this passage. He says we should submit not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh or morally corrupt or abusive. It isn't such a hard thing to submit or be subject to a good and gentle boss, is it? But the rubber hits the road if your boss is harsh and demeaning or is rude in the way they treat their employees. Or maybe you know your boss to be morally corrupt in their own private lives or in the way they run the business. They themselves are stealing from the company or evading taxes or breaking various labor laws. What do we do then? Or your boss is unfair. They take credit for your work and blame you for their mistakes. How do you respond to this sort of situation? Well, our natural inclination is to respond in kind. My boss is rude to me, I'm going to be rude to him behind his back. My company's taking advantage of me, then I'm going to do the same thing and take advantage of my company. Maybe I over-report my hours or supplement my income with uh, you know, stuff from the business. But Peter says no. Because we fear God, Christians are called to serve even harsh, corrupt, and unjust bosses. 
We do have to be careful here, though. What Peter is saying here is a call to, uh, to Christians to serve their employers, but that doesn't necessarily mean doing everything they say. Again, if we're serving our employer out of our fear for God, then that puts limits on what we're willing to do. There may be occasions when, because we fear God, we need to speak up about corrupt business practices or even report our boss's abusive behavior to his or her superiors. We may need to even report our employer to OSHA or the Department of Labor and Industry. There may be times to do these sorts of things. But I hope you see there's a big difference between filing a formal complaint with the proper authorities on the one hand and mocking your boss behind their back on the other. There's a difference between workers striking because of unfair pay and workers stealing from their company because of unfair pay. Do you see the difference there? Submitting doesn't necessarily mean you just put up with any sort of thing that's going on in your workplace, but it does entail a certain way of responding to injustice. Peter's a realist, and he recognizes that if we are subject to our masters because we fear God, it will inevitably, from time to time, at the very least, involve suffering. Why should we suffer? Well, Peter says, suffering unjustly is a gracious thing. He says it twice in this passage. Verses 19 to 20, Peter says, when we endure unjust suffering, it is a gracious thing. And so we're called to suffer graciously. This is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. It's not our natural inclination. And so when we do endure in the face of unjust suffering, it exhibits God's grace at work in our lives. In verse 20, Peter unpacks this logic further. He says, on the one hand, if you do something wrong and you're smacked for it, you deserved it, didn't you? What good is that? What credit is it to you? If a child is given chores to do as a punishment, they don't show up to the parent and say, now you owe me money. That's what they deserve, right? Here, Christians need to be careful. Peter's warning us. We can use our faith as an excuse. We can say, I'm being persecuted because I'm a Christian. And he's saying, hang on a second. If you're actually being punished because you did something wrong, that's not persecution. That's the just punishment you deserve. And we can do the same sort of thing. We can say, I didn't get hired for this job or given this promotion or I was reprimanded at work or I'm being you know, looked down upon by my neighbors and, and it's because I'm a Christian. Well, be careful. It might just be that you weren't the most uh, well-qualified candidate for the job. It might just be that you didn't deserve the raise. It might be that you're actually doing something you shouldn't be doing, and the reprimanding is perfectly just. We need to be careful that we don't use our faith to justify ourselves. On the other hand, Peter says, though, when we do good and we suffer for it and we endure, this is gracious in God's sight. It's pleasing in God's sight. And so in the Gospels, in the book of Acts, we see both Jesus and his disciples being beaten for doing good, being uh, uh, falsely accused, having all sorts of wrong things said about them. At times, friends, we will suffer unjustly. We live in a broken world, and that's part of the reality of our world, is suffering unjustly. We will suffer for doing good. It's part of life in this world. But the problem of injustice can't be solved through violent revolution. 
And we see this time and again in history. The French Revolution, they had all sorts of reasons to be mad. It wasn't uh, uh, unjustified to try and overthrow that government, but you see right away the French Revolution they, it becomes the terror, right? They become worse than what they replaced. We see the same thing in the, uh, what's it called, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone last summer. Did they have legitimate complaints about some of the ways things were being policed? Sure. But then they try and violently overthrow it, and then you have private citizens wandering the streets with machine guns. That's not better. That's worse. We can't overthrow injustice. We're oftentimes trying to overthrow injustice through force just perpetuates the cycle. It leads to more injustice. No, the problem of injustice can only be solved by doing good, by repaying evil for good. But to take this path requires suffering. It involves suffering. And so Peter says in verse 21, to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. And so our very calling as Christians is to suffer graciously, to follow Christ's example. And here we come to the second truth in this passage that I want you to catch this morning. Christ suffered as an example. Christ suffered as an example. Do you know this sentence, the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog? It's well known because it's one of the shortest sentences that use all the letters in the English alphabet. And so it's used for an example of different fonts to see what all the different letters look like. Well, likewise, in the ancient world, there were these different practice sentences that used all the letters. And so students would practice tracing over these sentences to learn to form their letters, to learn their letters and their grammar. And that's the word Peter's using here. He says, this is what Jesus has left for us. It's like the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. He's left us an example to be traced over, to be copied out. He says, furthermore, it's not just a practice sentence. He's left this example so that we might follow in his footsteps. At the beach or in the snow, it's fun to try and walk in someone else's footsteps, right? Their stride's different. Uh, you may not have noticed, but I have a really duck-footed stride, and so I have distinctive footsteps in the snow that are hard to follow. But it's a fun game to do, right? And Peter's saying that's what Jesus has left for us, footprints to follow in. But footprints always lead somewhere, don't they? It's a path, a direction to follow in life. Peter says Christ suffered as an example to leave us a sample of suffering to copy, to trace out in our own lives. He's left us footprints that we can know the direction we ought to head. To show Christ's example of suffering, in these final verses in our passage, Peter entail, uh, uses a, a series of quotes and allusions from the famous suffering servant passage in Isaiah 53, which I've already read part of earlier this morning. In retrospect, it's almost impossible to read that passage from Isaiah 53 and not think about Jesus. But it's interesting, in the New Testament letters, Peter alone quotes that passage as a way of explaining Jesus' work. I warned you at the beginning of the series that Peter is a masterful biblical theologian. He brings together and weaves together all these passages from the Old Testament to explain Christ's work. And certainly we see that at work here. If you sometime this week, perhaps, compare Isaiah 53 to this passage here in 1 Peter 2, 
You'll notice Peter actually rearranges the clauses and phrases from Isaiah 53 to correspond to the course of Jesus' own suffering. He begins in verse 22 by describing Christ's character. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. A bit earlier in verse 20, Peter said, If we sin and are beaten for it, we deserve He did not deserve any punishment whatsoever. He was innocent, and therefore all of his suffering was undeserved. There was no deceit found in his mouth. He lived with integrity. His, uh, his teaching is true and reliable. Then in verse 23, he proceeds from Christ's general character, specifically to his suffering, how he responded to suffering. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. When Jesus was mocked by the council and the Roman guards, he didn't attack them back. He didn't mock them back. When Jesus stood before the council, before Pontius Pilate and Herod, he did not criticize or threaten, but he patiently endured. And how is it that he endured? Peter says it's because he continued to entrust himself to God. He continued to trust in God, the just judge, to be confident that God would indeed judge justly, that all things are under God's control. And so whatever suffering he faces is under God's control, that God will ultimately vindicate those who trust him and suffer unjustly. And this indeed is part of the meaning of Jesus' resurrection. It's a vindication saying, actually, this was a wrong punishment, undeserved. The resurrection is a vindication of Jesus who endured unjust suffering as an example for us. How do we follow that example? Well, there's some specifics here, aren't there? We shouldn't try to lie to get out of trouble. When we're reviled or mocked, we don't mock back. When we suffer, we don't threaten, I'm going to get you. But Calvin actually has some great comments on this passage, John Calvin. He says, we really fulfill this example, Jesus' example, when we're so calm in our spirits that we wish those who are now our enemies would become our friends, and when we try to bring those who oppress us to the right way. He says, when we have this attitude, we commit our cause to God and we pray something like this. And here's a, a quote, this prayer from Calvin. You, O Lord, know my heart, how I wish for those who seek to destroy me to be saved. If they are converted, I will congratulate them. But if they continue obstinate in their wickedness, I know that you watch over my safety. I commit my cause to you. Christ held this meekness, therefore it is the rule we should follow. We fulfill this passage when we pray for our enemies. Even from the cross, do you remember Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do? Likewise, we are called to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us, to seek their conversion. Christ suffered as an example, and it's a brilliant example. But his example is too much for us to live up to in our own power. Right from the start, he never sinned. Okay, we're out of the race. 
I, I've sinned. How do I live up to that? How do I suffer like he did? His example can actually be overwhelming. How can we possibly love with a love like that? How can we endure unjust suffering like that? Well, Peter doesn't just conclude this paragraph with a crushing example, saying, well, this, look, Jesus was perfect. You try and be perfect too. That would be crushing. No, do you see how he ends? He ends with good news. And here we see the third truth in this passage. Christ suffered to save us. Christ suffered to save us. The 17th century Scottish commentator Robert Layton puts it like this, Christ's work is not only to rectify or correct sinful man by his example, but to redeem him by his blood. That is to say, Christ leaves us an example of how to patiently endure suffering trusting God, but he also makes it possible for us to follow his example through his work on the cross. And here then, in this final verse of the passage, Peter brings us up to the mystery of the atonement by which God and humanity are reconciled through the work of Jesus Christ. Atonement is a theological term that was actually developed in the English language, and so the word means what it sounds like. To atone literally means to take action, to make at one. That's what it means to atone, to restore harmony, to make at one. How does the atonement work? Well, I say it is a bit of a mystery. There's a depth to it that can never fully be explained. And so Peter in his letter uses a variety of terms. We've already seen these. He says the atonement is a bit like a ransom. It's a bit like Jesus paid the price so that we can be set free. It's a bit like a ransom, but it's also a bit like a sacrifice, like the sacrifices Israel made at the temple and at the tabernacle. But, even more, but it's also like a substitution, Peter says, that he's taking our place. And so we've got to hold all these together, that it's a ransom sacrifice substitution. It's all those things together. Do you see here verse 24? Peter quotes Isaiah 53. He bore our sins. That's the language of sacrifice from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, this was symbolized. Someone would bring a sacrifice, a lamb or a bull, to the tabernacle, to the altar, and they would lay their hands on the head of the sacrificed animal. And it's symbolizing, this animal is going to take my place. It's going to stand in my place. And in, in chapter 1, verse 19, Peter's already said, we were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. He's already compared Jesus to the Passover lamb, and now he's saying he bore my sins, or our sins. Remember all the way back to the beginning, uh, chapter 1, verse 2, he says that we are sprinkled with his blood. Again, that's part of Israel's sacrificial system, marking people who have entered into the covenant. To make perfectly clear what he's talking about, Peter adds these two prepositional phrases to the quote from Isaiah. He says, he bore our sins in his body, on the tree. The Old Testament sacrifices were only signs and seals that pointed forward. But here is the reality. Christ bore our sins in his body. Every wrong thing we've done, he somehow took into himself, onto himself. And Peter calls the cross the tree. It's a bit of an unusual term there. If you've been part of the evening studies on Deuteronomy, though, you may recall in Deuteronomy 21-23... Moses says, he who hangs on a tree 
is cursed by God. Peter almost certainly is using the term tree to refer to the cross here to allude back to that passage from Deuteronomy. He's saying Jesus took on himself the curse from God that we deserve for breaking God's law. Jesus is a substitute who took our place, who took what we deserved. And so Jesus' suffering is an example, but it's much more than that. He suffers vicariously as a substitute for us. He takes the punishment we deserve as Jesus entrusted himself to God who judges justly. So we too, through Jesus, are reconciled to God who judges justly. If your faith is in Christ, you've been united to him. You come to the God who judges justly, and God looks on you and sees Christ, sees Christ's work. As the hymn puts it, uh, he looked, uh, now I'm not going to be able to remember it, the hymn off the top of my head, looked on him and me. See why Jesus does this in verse 24, though? Do you see why Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree? It doesn't say so you can escape punishment. No, Peter says Jesus does that, this in order that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Die to sin and live to righteousness. If we're united to Christ by faith, by trusting in him, then through our union with Christ, we have died to sin. And so now have a new life in us that lives righteously, that we might do what is good, that we might do what is right. Christ suffered to save us so we can now live righteous, God-honoring lives. To put it another way, again from Isaiah 53, by his wounds you have been healed. It's related to the phrase from verse 20, when you sin and are wounded for it, beaten for it. Now it's saying, well, you deserve to be beaten, but Christ is wounded so that you can be healed, so that you now can live a spiritually healthy and whole life here in the world. Peter then concludes, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Again, we see another aspect of Jesus' atoning work. We were like sheep who strayed, who wandered off, who were not going the way that we ought to. And yet now, by our shepherd, we have been brought back. And he's the shepherd and overseer of our souls. Peter began this passage with instructions to submit to our masters and to suffer graciously. That's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? Suffering graciously is not easy. But Moses' passage is not taken up with instructions. Almost as soon as Peter mentions Jesus, that's what he wants to talk about. The passage is taken up with an explanation of Christ's suffering as an example for us and as a way to save us. And so what Peter does is reframes our suffering in the world. We suffer when people mistreat us, when our bosses mistreat us, when coworkers take advantage of us when we're maligned by our neighbors and friends, it's all suffering, that's true. But it's not just something we have to endure. Peter says, actually, when you suffer for doing good, you're fulfilling your very calling. You're participating in Christ's own work in the world to undo justice by doing good. 
And so Jesus is, or, or rather, Peter's calling us to totally rethink how we see our suffering. It's not just, what a jerk, I can't believe they'd treat me like that. It's saying, actually, here's an opportunity to live like Christ, to copy his example. Here's an opportunity to follow Christ's footsteps. You know, people go on these pilgrimages, like to Spain, to walk these routes, or to Jerusalem, you walk the way of the cross. And uh, if, to be clear, if anyone wants to pay for me to go do one of those, I'm happy to go on a trip and, and do that. I'm not against taking trips, but the sort of pilgrimage Peter's talking about happens every day. It happens tomorrow morning when you get up. He's saying you follow Jesus' footsteps, not by going somewhere else, flying somewhere and going on a hike, but you follow Jesus' footsteps by how you respond to suffering, by how you respond to being mistreated, by how you respond to your boss taking advantage of you. That's when you start following in Jesus' footsteps. Like Jesus' own work on the cross, it's not pleasant or easy. Make no mistake. It's called suffering for a reason. Okay, it's not fun. But this is how long-term, lasting change happens, both in our lives and in our world. Jesus' death on the cross is the turning point of all history. Uh, his disciples don't immediately say, set all your slaves free, but it's the beginning of the end of slavery. We're going to look at next week. And it slowly works out over time. And we witness the atoning work to this turning point in history. When we, by God's grace, when we're our enemies, we pray for those who persecute us. We ask God to convert our